One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. Well, good morning, all of you wonderful people in Orlando, One Church. I am so incredibly honored to be speaking with you. It actually is Tuesday afternoon here in Southern California. And uh, I am incredibly honored at the invitation to speak with you. And particularly, well, because I really, really love just the the Johnsons and uh, through them have fallen in love with those that I've met. But in many ways this morning, I am speaking to many of you in your homes that I've never met and never seen. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for the more that it's such a dark, brutal time in our nation's history. I was in South Africa at the end of the apartheid era, the beginning of the Nelson Mandela Mandela issue. And and it was brutal then, for sure. I mean, the cities were burning and there were riots in the streets. And there were some very, very deeply legitimate grievances and gripes against the white oppressive system, met with all the craziness of the anarchists and looting and the pain of, of, of uh, the economic uncertainty and brokenness that accomplishes, accompanies these moments. So thank you. I feel deeply honored to speak to you. I hope I will speak as a father. I hope that the balm of Gilead will minister to you. I hope that you will feel the tender presence of the Holy Spirit in your homes, on your iPhones and your computers, and uh, that God will really touch you. Those of you for whom it's closer to home, maybe family members have been affected by it. It may be in cities that you've come from, or maybe just your heart is filled with the angst of a nation burning as it should be for all of us. In fact, this morning I was uh, doing a little video for our community around the story of Nehemiah. And it came to mind because Jerusalem was burning. For those of you who don't know the story, Nehemiah was in captivity with the rest of Israel. But there was a remnant that was still in Judah or in Israel. And uh, some of the brothers came to where Nehemiah was. And he sat and he asked them, you know, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they describe how the walls were being broken down, the gates were burning, and general mayhem was the order of the day, and he listened intently, as should we at this time. I think we should be profound listeners, both to our ears and to our heart, as to the cries of those who feel betrayed and brutalized by the events of the last few years, and obviously for eons of time before that. But then his response, Nehemiah, is he gets on his knees and he weeps to the Father. And part of what he said is, me and my uh, family have sinned against you. And you think, no, you didn't. You've been in captivity. But such is the, the, the passion that he feels for the condition of Jerusalem that he owns its pain and its plight. And so I feel very honored to be speaking. I'm not insensitive at all to where our nation is. And I hope today's scripture will really build you up, will strengthen you and give you a fresh vista on God's working in these desolate times. I'm reading from Mark chapter 6, and I pick up from verse 30 through till the end of the chapter. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. I'll explain that in a moment. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place 
and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a, in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, just chaos. And so he began teaching them many things. What a great response by Jesus is to kind of open the scriptures to them or to be the word of God to them. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. But they said to him, that could, that could take more than a half a year's wages. One translation says about eight months worth of wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. Well, when they found out, they said five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. I love that detail, don't you? Just this little detail, it helps our imagination to visualize the narrative. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they ate, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, the context is pretty remarkable. If we go back a few chapters, the first thing we see happens is that Jesus is rejected in his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth and there he is the local boy. There he is not even a prophet necessarily and certainly not the Messiah. In fact, the teachings they think are a little strange and is, is in the shame based culture his family gets really awkward and tries to kidnap him and get him out of the light to shut him up. And so amongst those whom he knew the longest, loved the deepest, he gets rejected. Now, if that's not difficult enough, the next thing we experience is him sending the disciples away. This is the first time they'll go away and minister without him. This is the first time he sends them out and he says to them, now, I don't want you to take anything with you. Think about it for a moment. Going on a trip, you have your air ticket when the planes were flying. No food, no extra shoes, sneakers, no Patagonia backpack, nothing. All that you have is that sense of calling and assignment. They come back and they are ecstatic as we read in the other Gospels. You won't believe what happened to us. Each has a story, each has a miracle, each has a moment but they are probably fairly burnt out as we see here. They're exhausted. Jesus looks with such affection towards them. And he says, come on, let's get out of here. Let's get away and let's find a moment where we can have some rest. And then thirdly, not just rejection, not just burnout, but sheer deep grief. Because it's in the earlier part of this chapter that John the baptizer is beheaded. You know the story? Um, he gets arrested because he is preaching against the marriage of Herod, king, and Herodias, who was married to Herod's brother. They get divorced. 
and Herod marries his sister-in-law. Levitical law said that was a big no-no. Chapter 16 and chapter 20. Definitely no, no, no. Herodias is furious. She's embittered by it. And can I just say to those of you who are a little more prophetic, boy, the prophetic journey is a difficult one. It's very lonely. It's fraught with misunderstanding, false accusation. People say unkind things about us because it's the, the um, in South Africa, we call it in Konto Wisizwe. It's the, it's the point of the spear. It's kind of cuts open the life and the flow of God by prophets speaking truth, even if it's not popular, even if it gets them into trouble. And Jesus is grieved by the fact that his cousin, uh, one can assume a man with whom he had some relationship, had been so brutally assassinated. Rejection, exhaustion or burnout, and now grief. That is not the stage set for a miracle. That is the stage where our humanity screams at us. And that's what's happening in our country right now. There's so much uncertainty and, 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 and so much unpredictability and there's so much chaos. And I listen to mayors speak and civic leaders speak and individuals interviewed in the streets and chaos reigns supreme. A mixture of the good and the righteous and the just mixed up with the chaos and the anger and the resentment. Wow. Not dissimilar to the context into which Jesus finds himself right now out of his love for his disciples he says come on boys let's get out of dodge let's get out of the way and let's go and find a quiet place um i was thinking about people going on their first international missions trip cross-cultural missions trip normally i see that at the end of the first or second day that cross-cultural reality of language of culture of the sights sounds and smells of that new environment just overwhelms us and that kind of drop-dead, scary look on their faces. Chris, get us out of here. This is way too exhausting. And I think Jesus probably had that inward smile. This was their first ministry trip. A fisherman who was suddenly preaching and praying for the sick. A tax collector is now suddenly laying hands on people with care and concern and love. And they are fried. But what part of God is most beautifully revealed here? I want to argue, my, my daughter and I did some research on this passage together. And, and Dana made a beautiful point in her beautiful millennial way. She said, Dad, isn't it amazing that the thing that is first to be descriptive of Jesus is his compassion? Now, the disciples had compassion, but it was kind of mental compassion, meaning, hey, look at these dudes. They're hungry and it's getting dark. So they have a mental solution. Send them home. But Jesus isn't offering a mental compassion. In fact, the Greek word is compassionate. It's, it's, a, it's like a verb. It's something you do because you feel. It's not what, what South Africans say, ach, shame. It's, a, it's just an emotive description of observation. This is Jesus, the incarnate God, revealing the beauty, wonder, and mystery of the Father by saying, I love this moment enough that I will open the scriptures and feed their souls. This will not just be a biological, physiological reality. I will speak into their souls and spirit. I will strengthen them. But then we will perform this miracle. Compassion, dear friends, is one of the sweetest ways of knowing the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. You know, isn't it amazing? That these, this crowd, conservatively 12 to 15,000 maybe, 
The patriarchal culture writes 5,000, but there were normally more women following Jesus than men and children. Conservatively, 12 to 15,000 people ran on the shoreline anticipating where Jesus would land. How hungry are they? That same spiritual hunger exists today. I know we get fed the narrative that Christianity's best days are gone, that Jesus' lovers are living in a false world with a myth of antiquity. But I think when we allow the compassion of Christ to leak our way through, not anger, not resentment, not bitterness, not I will put my stake in the ground and I will vote on a particular block. Compassion, gentle, sustained love that costs me something. That is as compelling a narrative as ever possible. I was watching a TV show the other night and the Muslim prince, it was fictional, but the Muslim prince turns to one of the priests and says, I want to become a Christian. I said the priest in shock. Why? He said, because you are all so compassionate. Now that's the kind of Jesus story I want to be part of, don't you? When the angry, bitter crowd looks into the eyes of compassion, they cannot remain a sustained sense of venom-spitting fury. Compassion is the very life flow of heaven. It reflects our Father who is in heaven. It reflects His Son who came to dwell amongst us. It reflects the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit where compassion trumps culture. Compassion beats our tradition. Compassion uh, destroys cliques, groupings, tribes, and division. Compassion is a beautiful wellspring of eternal life. And that, dear friend, will draw people to us. Like you, I hear the many stories of our irrelevance. But I think when that contagious compassion of Jesus grabs our heart and we look with gentleness on that homeless person who has a story to tell. One of the dearest people in our community grew up from about the age of 12 till her senior year at high school living on the streets. Her mum was an alcoholic, her dad a hero and addict. When I've listened to her story, and I daren't even tell it because it's way more profound than anything I can describe. Everything inside of her should be angry at her father and mother. Mother's passed away. Her father is still a hero and addict on the streets of a city north of here. She could be. She could be bitter, resentful, angry. But with tenderness when she speaks, and I spoke with her this morning, that sense of compassion for the homeless is born out of the pain that much of her teenage years were spent living homeless. You see, the compassion of God has gripped her heart rather than bitterness or resentment. No wonder the crowds ran, chased the boat to find the giver of this life. Compassion surely is what needs to leak out of us as our nation burns. The second thing I see here is the obvious sense of multiplication. You know, I love the overriding narrative of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. And how often isn't there an Old Testament story that gets mirrored in the New? 
And for me, the Jewish person present would know that God introduced himself as provision with Abraham and Isaac. We all know the story well. Abraham takes his son up. He's about to offer his son as a sacrifice. The angel uh, grabs his arm as the knife is about to plummet into his son's heart. And he said, no, 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 Yahweh here. God is provision. It's not what he does. It's who he is. He can't help himself. I love being a dad. I've got three kids. My eldest is 32, lives in Australia with her husband. They lead a church there and my four grandkiddos. My second daughter is here as well, married to a, a guy from London. And they've got one little kiddo and then my son. And you know how much I love being generous with my kids. Very limited means, of course. I don't have endless rolling capital. Um, took my son to get some skater shoes. At the age of 21, he suddenly, well, 20, he's got skating again. So for amongst his birthday gifts, got him some skater shoes. Ended up two for the price of one. Two Jealousy driving, beautiful shoes. I'm totally envious. But I left there feeling pretty cool. I could, I had the means to bless my boy. Now, if me, a faltering, broken, limited father, gets such joy and pleasure out of that, how much do you think God the Father looked upon these 12, 15,000 people and oozed at the opportunity? To reveal himself one more time. Make them sit down, Jesus said. Groups of fifties and hundreds. And I wonder what the disciples thought when their mental compassion was gently dismissed. And now they are overwhelmed. Remember they were already burnt out. Remember they already want out. Remember they already want to go and have a vacation. And at the most inconvenient moment, Jesus says, I've got one more job for you guys. And the loaves and the fishes are brought. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just about to reveal himself one more time. You know, friends, I think all of us should have an older story of God's sovereign provision and a current testimony of God providing for us now. Last week, Meryl and I felt to give some money to a couple. And we cited an amount, got it to them. And the next day got, I don't know how many texts of gratitude. They were literally without money. Credit cards maxed. They, they were literally on their knees saying, Oh God, how will we even eat this, this week, this month? And we were humbled. We thought, well, it's only X amount. It's not that large amount. We actually did send them more. But, um, you know, they've got a story to tell. We were on our knees we didn't have money, and look at what God did with us. My son, when we prepared our college fund, put Dana through Biola four years, put Merrill through grad school for two years, put T through college for three years, and now we got his senior year and we've run out of college money. And so we sat down as a family and said, well, what should we do now? Well, the obvious answer is get some loans. And I said, well, what if this is a moment where my boy gets his Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh story. And I said, let's pray. If by the time college comes around, we don't have the money, we'll take out some loans. We prayed together within a week. A check comes, an unexpected, unknown check comes in towards his education of approximately half of the next semester's money. Now, I showed my boy the check. Do you know 
how blown over. I mean, I could have knocked him over with a feather. It's like, why would God even care about my college? Why would God even fuss about the money I need to pay the next semester? See, he has a story. We have a story. The people we gave money to has a story. The people gave money to him has a story. Isn't God magnificent? But the joy of the story is that it had to come through the disciples. The 12,000 people there, do you think after the first few rows of a thousand people, they even knew where the food came from? I'm sure they didn't. But Jesus put it in the hands of the disciples because he wanted them to be the dispensers of grace and the supernatural. In their exhaustion, depletion, probably a tad grumpy, God does this incredible work. As Dana was saying, you know, Dad, I wonder when they realized it was a miracle. Now, if it was me, when I started passing the basket around, I'd be like, not so much. There's lots of people to feed here. As if anything I can organize can take care of that moment. Simple idiocy. But God multiplied it. I think the basket just never got empty. And eventually 12 baskets full of bread and fish remained. And one little boy went home a very happy camper. God wants to use us in sovereign and supernatural ways. But sometimes it's got to be in the desolate place when we have nothing, when we're at our wit's end and we're exhausted and burnt out and we've experienced rejection and grief, that it's like God teases up, now you're ready to see my hand revealed. I land. Thank you for giving me time to tell my story today. May God grant you grace, irrespective of what got you here. Rejection, exhaustion, grief. Maybe the story is pertinent for you right now as individuals, as families, and as a community in Orlando. Maybe God can trigger your hearts in his compassion and in his givingness to loosen your hand too and see what he can do with your loaves and fishes. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this remarkable community. Thank you for what you have already done amongst them. And thank you for what you're doing in this time of desolation. The stories that are already emerging of your miracles and your supernatural intervention. Will you come and reveal yourself even more in anticipation of what is to come? They had stories of the little things you've done, but now they have stories of the great things that you do also. Bless them and may faith and grace grow inside of them. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thanks for sharing this time with me. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Bye-bye now.